0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Kate Lucy Holmes, who I spoke to quite recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. Now, she's been in a lot of bands, which you'll find out more about throughout the interview but to give you some sort of idea um, it was the Brighton based pop band called Frazier Chorus where she almost started her career but actually there was more before that including the Mad Professor, but then went on to be part of, or one half of the band client as well. So, um, yes, look, it's all going to be explained in this interview. So look, I'm not going to get it all wrong now. So look, after some slightly casual chat with Kate, we got down to that very interesting, exciting um, question or point about, um, yes, being in lots of bands, basically. And uh, this was Kate's reply. And um, you'll find it fascinating. Look, make notes. I will test you at the end. Kate, it's over to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, when I was at, at uni, I actually played on loads and loads of my professor records. Oh. I was like a reggae band, and I'd probably in about fifty records over like a ten-year period.
0: Wow, that's um, impressive. Yes,
1: yeah, so I, I played the flute. I mean, not great, but he used to get me up to a studio, which is in Peckham, and literally like play on about twenty tracks. Yes. And like buy me some lunch, and then I'd go back to university, basically, and I did that for quite a few years.
0: That's fantastic. Um, uh,
1: he's, you know, he's actually sort of a friend. But yeah, I play on loads of like dubby Crazy part, like three, four, five, six. Lee the Scratch whole. Perry, Horace Andy records. Oh my
0: God, Lee Scratch the, the classics. So I know we were all in the 80s, we were very obsessed with an album by Augustus Pablo meets King Tubby. And there was this, yeah, uh, I loved all that. I really yes, loved all that. I've
1: still, actually still got the um, vinyl here, actually. I still play it.
0: Rockers sometime. Uptown or something. Yeah. We love it. So what was your own teen musical life what were you what sort of um brought you onto that journey that was going to be a world of reggae and well, pop. a teenager yes what were your teen years
1: um, i was my teen years were basically spent riding ponies um and swatting at school
2: good um
1: and um i was introduced to like you know specials david barry by other school friends so I became really obsessed with the specials and like, the whole two-tone thing was probably the first thing I got really involved in.
0: Yes. Loved
1: it. But how did you um, get
0: into playing music, though?
1: Um, I Basically, um, I, do, I played the flute since school. And then when I was at university, they, I got asked to join this reggae band to play the flute. Right. So I did. And then that I kind of, kind of carried on playing it. That's how I got the... Um, you know, worked with a mad professor. We, just, we did a demo. It was like a white reggae band. It was a really bad band, actually. <laughs> um, but I stood along on the flute, we did a few gigs in Brighton, and then we played with the mad professor, and then he asked me to carry on playing the flute for him. And then I met Tim from Fraser Chorus in Brighton. Yes. So we sort of started this band, and I said, oh, I can't really play any instruments, or I can really play the flute. So he said, fine. So that's how it started.
0: Okay, then. So we, as a teenager, though, because no one's ever told me they, they rode a horse, they normally sort of like, were... Yeah. That's all you did, wasn't it? You rode a horse. Yeah. You, weren't, you weren't in the school. Are you talking
1: teenager till I was 18? Yes, the,
0: the, the early, you know, like, because I suppose without giving too much away, but I'm in my mid-50s, so the 70s was that period of Top of the Pops and glam rock. And, you know, I was always really obsessed.
2: I was, with...
1: I was oblivious to everything. I just was pony mad. Wow. I, I, I used to watch Top of the Pops every week. Yes. And I loved like, Bowie and I was introduced to me, so I never really discovered it myself. I used to listen to my mum's Rolling Stones records. When she went out, um, we kind of lived on this, like, kind of hippie farm in Wales. Okay, then. And my stepfather kind of abandoned us and went to work in London from Monday to Friday. So I was kind of had this really weird kind of feminine upbringing of my mum and my there was three, four sisters. Wow, two real. So we kind of, like, we went to the lo- local comprehensive, and um, I just remember, I loved music. I used to listen to, like, all her records, like Joan Baez, Rolling Stones, and then I used to kind of, like, smoke cigarettes when she went out and dance to, like, you know, burning stones and then put those mouthwash in my mouth when she came back. what <laughs> <Everyone laughs> yes. did. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of my childhood, basically. Yeah. Because you know, there's a lot of, you Because
0: know, I was going to say, there's a lot of hippie communes and people who go and find they themselves... We
1: weren't really hip, It wasn't a really hippie commune. No.
2: But there was the... It
1: was kind of a little bit, like, self-sufficient. It was more the good life, really. The good life, know?
2: yes. Yeah. Felicited kind of be like love. that. And, oh, that's you know, nice.
1: Um, but it was it kind of ended up like a bit of a disaster. Like my mum, my stepfather went off and with a with man that he met in Harrods eventually and my mum kind of had a bit of a breakdown um, just because she was left on her own on this mountain um, and went to like local comprehensive, it was quite rough. So it wasn't, yeah, yeah, and I think I just threw myself into ponies and horses just to get away from everything, really, you know. I that
0: sounds like far from the maddening crowd.
1: Yeah, and then, all like, that, that was one of my, yeah, and then basically I just, like, read loads of Thomas Hardy and just kind of wrote poetry and, you know, wondered, you know, I loved lyrics and I loved English and I loved reading, so maybe, yes. uh, you know, um, obviously in Frasier Chorus I wasn't a lyricist, but later on I started writing loads of lyrics.
3: Yes.
0: Were yeah, you into I'm, Sylvia Plath by any chance?
1: I was into everything like that, yeah. Stevie Smith, Sylvia Plath.
0: Yes, there you go.
1: American poets. Yeah, I loved all that. My favourite author was probably Thomas Hardy. Nice. Um, I I loved him because it was always like, if only I'd done this, this wouldn't have happened, you know? If only I hadn't crossed the river then, we wouldn't have drowned. Because he was both such a pessimist, wasn't he? He was. It was was all like, everything was like, everybody took the wrong path, basically. Sliding doors. Yeah, so that's why I kind of, I loved him, I think. Yes,
0: so you must have had a romantic melancholia in your in your heart.
1: I think so. Yeah, I was like, you know, I had a pretty happy childhood. We had my animals and
3: horses. Yes.
1: You know, we didn't have much money. We weren't like rich or anything. We literally most of the ponies were given lent to us, and we kind of cobbled together pennies. Really, you know, everything went on the horses. We didn't yes. really have money for anything else.
0: Well, vet bills, they, they, they get you done. I know. think
1: our ponies didn't have vet bills. Our ponies were like cheap and cheerful. <laughs>
0: yes, you can't go to the vet. <laughs> they so. weren't,
1: you know, we didn't have expensive ponies. We, yes. The ones we were given, basically, we had to make do with them.
0: Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So then did you escape to university? Was that your next move?
1: Yeah, basically, I couldn't wait to leave Wales. I guess that was it. I just like, When I was 18, I, was, like, I, went to, I got into the University of Sussex and I did, studied history for like three years. And that's yes. when I became... Like that's when I, you know, joined the kind of like reggae band at university, and then I met Tim. Was in that in the Was course. that the
0: mid eighties or the early eighties? Yeah,
1: ended. Yeah, kind of end of the eighties.
0: Ah, right. So you would sort of still got a student grant. Hurrah! Yeah, I had, a
1: student, <laughs> I had everything. Yeah. <laughs> even
0: I think even housing benefit at some stage in in, in those years wasn't there. Which... I had
1: everything. Yeah.
0: Cancer tax, housing yeah. benefit. Yeah, I know, it's just amazing, you know. And no, and no debt at the end. Some, I knew lots of people who had actually saved money on their grant period. Well, I
1: didn't... No, I actually worked for university. I've always worked. So I just had a job the whole time.
0: Yes. Um. So, look, the band, it came together just past the mid-60s, the mid-80s, didn't it? 80, yeah. 86. So was it kind of... Um, did it all click into place?
1: Um, well, ba- yeah, uh, what do you mean, Frosier Chorus? Yes. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, we knew Jim Shelley, the journalist, who who lived in Brighton as well, and we used to sit around his flat and listen to Cocktail Twins and New Order, and that like, Tim was obsessed with like, New Order, Cocktail Twins. Like We loved the 4AD label. We were literally obsessed with every band on 4AD. They can dance? They wasn't such, I, I like them. I, yeah, I saw them play. I mean, actually, Lisa's an amazing um, film writer now, isn't she? Yes,
3: we
1: loved so, I mean, them. I loved all the 4AD bands. I mean, Port Allen. I, I Creation bands kind of, uh, kind of like bypassed me. Yeah, I was quite. like a 4AD girl, you know. They're much more sophisticated. So. <laughs> and the album covers. I'm not going yeah, yeah, to yeah. say anything. I know, you know? But, but anyway, we love 4AD. But so. between me
0: and you, the album covers were great, weren't they?
1: Yeah. So you know, when we got a singles deal with 4AD, I just, you know, it's literally like I, I actually remember walking around London putting the demo tapes in all the record labels. We literally walked everywhere, me and Tim with the demos, and put them into all the record labels.
0: <laughs> yeah. And did it come... And did you get signed up quite... Yes, because it, during that period, there was, like, the Smiths, let's face it, the 80s was about... 83 to 87 was the Smiths, which was kind of the height of indie pop, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, we, we were kind of more like... kind of like pulp, an early pulp, I think, Frasier, of course. We probably were before our time.
3: Yes.
2: We probably
1: would have been much bigger if we'd come later. I remember we sent Ivo a demo tape, and apparently... He tried to call me about 40 times, but the phone had been cut off in the flat that I lived in London. Yes. He could never get through, and he said he used to phone up, and it was just like deadline. And in the end, he actually finally got through, So the phone rang, and it was, Ivo, what's Russell? And he went, I want you to come and see me. And it was like, oh, my fucking God, this is like a dream come true. And he said he'd been trying for like two months to get hold of us.
0: Crikey. Actually, so, yeah, you, you, you had a slightly similar, because I, I did an interview with Christian Hirsch from... Um, throwing muses. and oh, she, yeah. And she sort of got a phone call from Ivan and were like, no, you're just having me on me. You know, this isn't real. You know, we're just a little band in America. And it's like, no. No, Ivan, uh, you
1: always phoned to everybody.
0: I yes. Think. So it's funny, you had the same experience of thinking, she just thought, God, I bet this guy's a pervert. No, he really <laughs> is a record label man. Yes, great. OK, but, you know, it's like, I suppose people don't really expect it, do they? Some person in, in the UK sort of phone and say, I think you're great. Do you want to be on my label? You think, Yeah. Bet you do. It's tricky, isn't it? So when, yeah, so with the four of you that got together, did did you, yeah, did it feel like you were on a mission? Did you feel like this is quite
3: special?
1: Um, I just think, you know, when you're young and you've kind of got this band and suddenly you get a deal with 4AD, you kind of like, it's like, oh my that was kind of like all we wanted. Yes. Then we then we got signed to Virgin and that's probably a disaster, really. We should probably stay with 4AD and been cool and like done some albums with 4AD. Yeah. But Virgin kind of signed us for like quite a lot of money and we got like a wage and everything. We gave it our best shot. So yeah, it, you know, it was really exciting. Yes. Um, the, you know, especially when the the first thing we kind of got on the B, you know, got on the radio one B list and we like, we you know, we were supporting black and people knew who we were I remember our first ever gig was at the um, UCL, and I remember all the posters were ripped off the wall after we finished, you know?
2: Oh, wow. that was such
1: a lovely feeling, seeing all our posters have been ripped down. And that UCL gig was very small, but we actually, it was an amazing gig. Well, we just got signed to 4AD. It was a small little gig. Um, It was just really exciting at the time.
2: Yeah, I felt we were kind
1: of part of the 4AD stay, but, you know, I think my one one regret was we probably should have stayed with 4AD. Yes, well... And kind of not gone for, like, the pound signs, really.
0: Well it's tricky because there was two bands I've interviewed from the eighties, the Railway Children and the Red Guitars, who both were yeah. on indie labels and then they went to Virgin and they both like had a terrible experience. And I think it was yeah. like actually the party's over, we really hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. Can we Yeah, we
1: you know we, we did two albums on Virgin we got dropped after a second one we were so pleased to get dropped. But you know, <laughs> the person that signed us was really lovely. The problem with Virgin when we signed to them was not a great label. Yeah. And you know, when we got on the B list they really should have pulled out all the shots to get us in the charts. See, when you got on the B list at Radio 1 with your first single, that's a massive thing. Yes. And they did absolutely nothing. They didn't even get the records in the shops. So, you know, when we charted it at like number 62, it was like that was our big chance of gone. Yeah. Because you know, now, you know, if you get on the B list now, you know, other bands have got on the B list, the record label goes overboard to make sure that record gets in the charts. Yeah. And those versions were just so on together, they couldn't even do that. <laughs> So it's kind of the biggest lost opportunity ever, to be honest.
3: Yes. And once you've
1: been on the B list and you're not a hit, they, they never put you on the Radio One Players ever again after
3: that.
0: I know, it's a cruel world. And we isn't never got it?
1: played ever again. So, yeah. you know, it was just really annoying. But anyway, you yes. Kind of learn from experience, I guess.
0: And did you, because I was just, I remember at the beginning you were talking about, you know, working with the mad professor. Was that before, or during, or after your experience? That was
1: actually before, during, and after.
0: Oh,
2: right. I
1: carried on. Yeah. I carried on working with for years. I mean, he's still a friend. He still calls me up sometimes. Yes. Um, but, you know, I, I, I just carried on doing it. I mean, I actually hate, I don't play the flute at all now. I just, I don't even know where my flute is. Yes. I just, I kind of went from flute to keyboard and, you know, the flute was kind of, it was fun, but, you know, it was kind of, it was a means to an end, you know. I loved doing it in vocal Chorus. I loved doing it as a mad professor. But I just, you know, I don't play it at all now, which is probably a bit sad.
0: Well, it's tricky, isn't it, really? Because yeah. the first album you did, there was a lot of production on it, wasn't there?
1: Yeah, we worked with Hugh Jones, and it was probably a little bit overproduced. But you know, there was a lot of production.
0: It was, you know, and and also kind of um, you. You also had Kate Saint John on oboe, which again. Yeah, some... I mean,
1: we had we had everybody on that album, um, but the second album I be I preferred it. We had like Paul Oakenfield mixes, and it's a bit more dancey. Yes um you know i didn't really i wasn't really involved in the production of the first album it was more like tim's baby i was just kind of there i was almost like a, a facilitator for him you know
2: yeah yeah of course
1: kind of and kind of i was like the person behind it you know kind of pushing um and tim was like the kind of wrote all the lyrics and he did most of the music you know
0: yeah absolutely because one thing because i cause one thing i sort of have sort of realized that with a lot of the bands you know there's definitely like period, so you had that sort of, slightly in a simplistic way, but you know, you had the punk period and then post-punk, then the world that is indie, and at the same time you had the mainstream charts with the Trevor Horn production sound but a lot of bands around 87, 88, who were really part of that indie world of, you know, C86 kind of pretty well came to an end because the scene had changed a lot because, you know, in a simplistic way you know, Ecstasy came along and suddenly it was like God, we've got a sound like the Soup Dragon and the Primal Scream and the Happy Monday so there was there was definitely a lot of people who liked those the sort of the mighty lemon drops and the primitives were just thinking, God, we can't even get arrested anymore. You know, once we were such I, actually,
1: I actually went to school with Tiggy. He was, in my, he was one of my best friends at school in the primitives.
3: Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like part
1: of my gang at school. We went to like King Henry VIII in Abergavenny. Wow. And he was like, I remember him.
3: God, I tell you, you,
0: that's more than I can say for my school year. But but yeah, so the musical, you know, having those musical moments that come, you know, and the next big thing and that kind of musical zeitgeist, I didn't realise quite so much until I spoke to people how important it is. And suddenly, you know, it's like we want dance music, we need, you know. That's the sound, because that's what we're all into. Well, the drugs, really. And then you had the grunge period. And that was like, yep, that's great. And then suddenly it's like, no, Britpop, we've got Britpop, everyone, jump, jump ship again. So it's kind of, it must be very difficult as an artist trying to pr- predict or work out what to do next. Because I was like a really huge David Bowie fan. And I realised that mostly in his career... Oh, the 60s, it was pretty terrible, really. But then the 80s, you know, he t- he started with Let's Dance, which was OK. Then he started to sort of, instead of lead anything, he sort of was started to follow what was happening. And people like him and Robert Plant and Rod Stewart, you know, who had been big in previous decades, you know, really s- successful, suddenly just sound like, God, you're just, you're just following... The trend, you know, you bought...
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, I love I Barry up until Let's Dance, but i never listened to any of his albums after that. No. That was it, basically.
0: I know. Ashes to Ashes. Yeah. That, I, that, that was
1: amazing. You know, that Ashes to Ashes was absolutely fantastic, but I've never listened to anything after that. Tin Machine, I don't even know any track. No, wow. I just loved him for that period, you know, especially, like, you know, the low period, the Berlin period is my favourite.
0: Yes. And I guess this is where your love of the Cotto Twins, because were you cause that those kind of musical soundscapes kind of creep into the sound of the band, don't they?
1: Yeah, I think. I mean, we actually went on tour with the Cotto Twins, which is great. We went on tour, the European tour with them, and we did like two nights at Brixton Academy with them as well. Yes, and that that was like my dream come true. I mean, they were just phenomenal at the time. They were amazing. Yes, and I think they're kind of quite an undervalued band now. Really, they should be massive still, but they're not.
0: I know it's weird, actually. Yeah. Because I think, well, I think Liz has completely disappeared. Simon's still about because he's got a record label. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's a shame
1: it, because they were absolutely amazing and they probably could have cleaned up, gone, you know, gone on tour now and just literally toured and toured and toured and toured and, toured and made millions because they were so amazing.
0: Yeah, I so know. Heaven or Las Vegas, yeah. just the classic. Actually, it was yeah. always um, oh, it wasn't Victory. Oh, it Treasure. It was Treasure, which was the Treasure
1: album. Was, it was the best. I love that album so God, much. I did love it.
0: Though yeah. I did an interview with Simon from the band, and he said. He didn't like it, but he knew all the fans loved that album. It's yeah. like, oh well, never mind, Simon. So look, yeah. when you were doing Hugh Jones, everyone loves Hugh. Was it a good experience for him? No, he was
1: a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> he was. He actually made me cry. Oh, he was actually, he, is he? I the, remember he actually got a flute player in to play my flute because I couldn't get it in time. He was so horrible to work with.
0: Oh my God, <laughs> that's the worst. My God, I've 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 spoken to a lot of drummers. I used to have nightmares
1: about him after the album. Yes, I and mean, he was a lovely guy. Don't get me wrong. He was just really. He was such a perfectionist. He was like, "That's not in time. That's not in time. That's not in time."
2: Oh my God! It's
1: like it's like two lines on a flute. Come on, it's not that hard to get it in time. You just put it on the fucking mixer. Just put it in the computer. Just cut it up. It's not in time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I actually got a flute player in to play my part, and that, that was like—I just thought this is the beginning of the end. Actually, Hugh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, we won't swap Christmas cards. Yeah. Um, blimey, yeah, because I know, uh, I, and I'm sure, because a few people have mentioned him that he just never slept. He just would get fags and booze and just be yeah, basically at the controls twenty-four-seven. Yeah but his his kind of CV is quite extraordinary.
1: But no, he never... was an amazing producer. He was just like uh, you know he actually probably gave me a nervous breakdown to be honest now, that album.
0: <laughs> yeah, I oh do. That's not good. I know of quite a few drummers who've had nervous breakdowns because they just couldn't get the click track and then the producer, you yeah. know, then the producer would say, "Look, fuck it, we're just going to get another drummer in and play your part because frankly, but this will leave you you know having nightmares 30 years for the rest of your life, basically. So that's not good. So yes. Oh, God, that's terrible. I know, because flute, you just think that's, that's not even, that's not a deal breaker in the world of music, is it really? Not really. It's just an ethereal sound that we used to always like. Yes. So you, the trick is, because a lot of bands, they have that five-year narrative, you know, they, they get together, they make a sound, they love it, you know, well, they, they're still doing well. And they, they start playing in front of, more than just their family and friends and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see. And then often, you know, John Peel would have a play and then they get a session. Then that first album things is going quite well here. Even the NME loves them. They get kind of gigs around the country in a scattered sort of way. The, tr- the second album, though, that can be the tricky one. How did, how did this feel? Because obviously you'd sort of gone, you're still on a major record label with big money.
1: Yeah, I think the second album, I mean, actually it's better than the first album. The songs, you know, there were some lovely songs on the second album. We did amazing videos. But it's really hard if you just have a massive hit with your first album and have a second album and not get on the radio again. It's kind of like the end of it, really. You know,
2: yes. it's
1: like the death. It's like the death. Death sound has happened. <laughs> You're kind of on last chance saloon, basically. Yes. You know, we had we had all the open mixes. We had like club hits. It just didn't translate. We didn't, we didn't get played on the radio, and that was that was a sad thing. And we never broke out of the UK. Um, so we just were like a UK band, it, you know, those, those are those you had to break in the UK before we could go into Europe.
2: Yes.
1: Whereas later on down the line, when I signed to mute with my other band client, we actually broke, we didn't break big at all, but we actually had a little vibe in Germany.
0: Oh, we love the German so market.
1: So basically we had a vibe in Germany and then that translated all across Europe and the only market we didn't actually have a vibe in ever was the UK, which is really weird.
0: Wow, that is yeah. weird. That yeah. is very strange. And how was it working with um, Ian Bra- Brodie?
1: Well, he was just a lovely guy. He's an all-round nice guy, you know. He was like the opposite of you. He was just a happy-go-lucky guy. <laughs> yes. So, you know, he, it was fun to work with Ian.
0: Yes, God, that is...
1: He smiled a lot. He was just he was an all-round lovely, lovely person.
0: Because the production value is high, but you're, you also did incredible videos, didn't you, in the days when it must Well, I think
1: have... at the time, I mean, you know, yeah, we did make good, quite good videos. But, you know, the one for nothing, I still love that video so much, all the dark swimmers, you know, in the swimming pool. Yes. Yeah, we did make quite good videos. Um, we, we, you know, the videos got shown on the TV quite a lot.
0: I know. Well, there's, but we there's... never got on
1: the radio, and that was the problem. But, yeah, know, I think now I know more about the music business, you have to have a lot of money behind you to get on the radio. Oh, that is and, cruel. And, you know, we, haven't, we never really had that big push, I don't think, to get Cause... on the radio.
0: Is it the case then? Because I think it was Age of Chance, but one of those bands, they got, you know, this record deal and they got a lot of money and obviously would never, they didn't even break even. So it's kind of the case that they just, and actually it's also Jim from Carter also said that they owe EMI hundreds of thousands. probably a
1: version hundreds of thousands. But, you know, that was a time when you know, they 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 have the Spice Girls next, so they're, they're fine, you know.
0: Yes,
2: but
1: I think labels now you wouldn't get signed for a hundred thousand pounds. Now, you know, I probably had so many record deals, and I look back, <laughs> um, and you know, since a hundred thousand pounds, it seems, to be, 000, it seems to be the amount of money that you got, yes. And now, obviously, you probably get like five grand, probably maximum, because <laughs> everything's changed in music. I think these are the golden years, you know, they were the golden oh, years really, because, really...
0: because when you were doing your third album, because there was a bit of a gap, isn't there, between. The two, the, the third. No, because
1: I didn't do the third album. Tim did that on his own. Right. We only so, had two albums and he went off and did his own thing then.
0: Yes. So did you have a moment with when you were doing the um, the second album? Did it feel like that was the, the kind of, to quote Jim Morris in the end?
1: Not really. because I, I mean, the second album, the mixes came out so good. Like, the, all the Paul Oakenfold mixes and videos are really good and we're trying to get Kind of like get into the club scene, but then that was, everything was just so competitive. Then, you know. Yes. You're, you know, for every record that gets played, there's fifty records that were all really good. So I think it was actually quite. Fraser calls was probably the most frustrating time of my career, really, because I could see the kind of what it could be, and then what it was, and we never really got to where we wanted to be. Yes. And that was, the, and i saw so many bands are in that same situation, you know.
3: Well,
0: it's interesting because um, time, you know, one thing I also had learned is timing is everything, because I know it was um, Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness was saying that they were two years too early for punk, you know. They were punk, but they were like, yeah. shit. We, 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 I, think we
1: I think we, we we. probably should have come out more in Britpop. Is that like Pulp? You know? Yes, and there was because another band great called... great lyricist. Yeah, I think we were probably about ten years too early, probably.
0: Yes, and there was we My were were Life quirky, Story. quirky, and we
1: were kind of like against the genre what's what was going on in the UK. And then like bands like Pulp came, like, kind of quirky idiosyncratic band you know quite tongue-in-cheek with good melodies and i think we probably should have been then
0: yes and also it was you know. my life story was my other favorite band at that time yeah,
1: oh yeah them.
0: with a bit of an orchestral quality and yeah. of, you know dressing up we love dressing up well yes. i didn't but um you know that was good so did you with leaving the band was it a moment was it mutual or did you just
1: well we we, we basically got dropped so we, we kind of broke up right you know. did you I, have i'd broken up Sorry? Did, uh,
0: did you have a moment where you said, this is it, kind of thing?
1: Not really. I mean, I broke up with him j- during the making of the second album, so that was really difficult anyway. Oh, my
0: God, it was Fleetwood Mac, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and so it was really <laughs> difficult to go on tour with him. We, I think we did the Cotto Twins tour and we were broken up. It was really hard. And then it was like we put the album out and, we're, you know, we're really proud of the second album and it just didn't really happen. And then we got dropped. So it was like, OK, fine, we got dropped. Yes. I, I remember walking into Blue Mountain Music who are the publishers and I said oh I really want to get my own publishing deal and they looked at me and the guy went I really wouldn't give up the day job Kate <laughs> <laughs> and that, I just thought oh, fuck you, I'm going to prove it to you now God, and bastard. I remember I got a job at a um, youth studio after we broke up oh nice in Brixton. yeah so I worked with him for, like, for nearly a year in Butterfly Studios and he, he was actually the amazing kind of like um, confidence builder
0: Wow. And he is, because I, I did an interview yeah. with the guy at the guitarist. I, I, you
1: know, he, he helped me so much. Uh, you know, I, I worked in, like, on the reception duck booking the band, you know, helping him in the studio. I and mean, It was just mad.
0: I
2: yes. was
1: like, his mad environment. But I went straight from Frasier Chorus to that. Yes. And it was, like, it, it was all into, like, trance and, you know, full moon parties. And I was, like, clueless, you know? <laughs> I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I just was like, oh, all these like, weird people are coming in the whole time. Yes. But it was an amazing atmosphere there. Um, and I remember you saying to me, "Everybody's an artist, Kate. Everybody can make a record." And he actually let me do demos and things there of my own stuff. Wow! And gave me so much confidence. So you know, I, I actually owe him a lot.
0: Yes. Well, I I know really? that yeah. the guy, I think his name is uh, probably Tim. Oh, they're all called Tim. In the band James, and they got Youth to produce one of their albums. Yeah, yeah. And so
1: actually, used used did a mix for us so Walking on Air, an amazing mix. Yes. And that's kind of the, I think that was a connection with Youth, and I ended up working for him. So.
0: Yeah. No. And there was other. Yeah, he did a lot. I mean, a huge amount. There was also Heather Nova, yeah. who I remember interviewing and she said he was. And she's
1: a big good friend of mine.
0: Right. Yeah. I think it was my only interview I'd done in Barbados or I don't know where Bermuda. she left. Bermuda. Bermuda. That's so yeah. it begins with B. Um, yeah. <laughs> luckily, I had to get a plane to go and see her then. Um, I don't know, ended on the wrong island. But yes, then you 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 sort of because most people get shattered by then and think I've had it. I'm going to get a job for the county council but you... I did actually
1: get a job um i i after we got dropped i i had a mortgage to pay i had a small flat in Brixton. i literally did go out and get two jobs in one day and they actually killed me i got the job for like two months i worked in books etc in the evenings from five till nine every night and in the morning i worked from nine till four in this advertising agency in king's cross inputting data wow and i did that and then i got the job with Youth, and that kind of like was a job youth was amazing because actually I could just walk up to a studio from like ten till five and had like yoga and tai chi every day and like Indian food and you know it was great.
2: Wow!
1: But yeah, so um, I think lots of people would have like kind of gone and got gone and got a proper job. I did. I did look. I did get offered a job in a press office, um, which I didn't take at the time because I I did. I just wanted to kind of prove to Blue Man's Music that she could write 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 music.
3: Yes, absolutely. So I just
1: was literally spurred on like my own kind of like personal journey to actually get my own deal
3: yeah absolutely <laughs>
1: and prove that I could do it I think you know that's that's that was kind of the next 10 years for me was to do that yes So and I, te- didn't. I so, stayed in the music business
0: yes well you formed another band didn't you or two in fact yeah I formed quite,
1: quite a few bands and we, we actually got deals for quite a few of them and I just carried on and carried on and carried on I just did not give up
0: Perseverance, mm. Perseverance. Yeah. So Technique, <laughs> sin, a synth band in the mid-90s, uh, mid um, yeah, did that all sort of fit into place quite nicely?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, after, um, from youth, I started a band called Sirenes. We got a massive deal with um, Columbia, um, and then that all went completely pear-shaped, and we, me and the girl fell out as we broke up, and then I formed for Technique after that. Um, and that was just like, I love New Order, it was like... A bit of New Order, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. A bit of 80s, you know, a bit of pop.
0: Ibiza. And, but,
1: you know, I, everything, Ibiza. Um, and then that, that was, like, really depressing because I was, like, so into the band so much, and we just got so slated in the UK. We literally got, like, no radio play, nothing, all the terrible reviews. And I almost gave up then. Um, the only kind of, like, silver lining was one of the tracks You and Me got covered by Coco Lee in the Far East. Oh, yes. And I'd I, I got like a massive, um, well, not massive, and it went to number one. And it was the, 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 it was the theme tune of Rush Hour. And I, I made about 40 grand on that one track.
2: Cash back. And
1: that, that was kind of like a comeback for me. You know what I mean? It was like, actually, I can write a tune. And I actually had a number one. Yes. And, you know, fuck you, Blue Mountain Music for dropping me. <laughs> because actually, I did fucking get a number one. And I actually signed to Sony Music. And then I signed to EMI after that. So, you know, that was kind of my dream come true to get that. So I, I got it. Yes. Um, but it, t- t- you know, it took me a long time to get it. And I sort of think, you, you know, music businesses like, the one thing I've learned from Alan McGee was like, just don't give up. You just keep battering, you keep battering, you keep battering. Eventually something happens. Yes. You know, you always get something in the end if you don't give up. And I, I'm, I never gave up, really, even though I hadn't met Alan then. I just carried on, carried on, carried on
0: which was quite yes talk about uh, yes i mean it's and then and then what happens after technique is that disbanded
1: yeah then technique kind of didn't really happen and then um i wrote a letter to depeche mode asking if technique could support them on their tour it's a bit cheeky yes and by then zan had moved away so i couldn't get her as a singer so then they said yes you can support us you can do like eight you can do like eight eight dates I thought, fuck! I haven't got a fucking singer. Yeah, tricky. So I found Sarah Blackwood from Dubstar. <laughs> so we went out as technique, me and her, and we just did like five tracks. And we our first gig was at Warsaw in front of a hundred thousand Depeche Mode fans.
2: Yeah,
0: and they're quite serious people. Wearing aren't
1: they? a uniform. I remember Andy Fletcher came up to us. He went, "Girls, you know they they're going to boo you for the entire twenty five minutes. Just you know that's what they do. Um, if they throw shit at you." don't worry, just move out of the way. If they throw bottles and coins, you need to run off the stage. <laughs> so it's like, well, thanks for that. <laughs> so we went on stage in so sort of, It was so cold. It was raining. We had little tiny, like, little khaki outfits on. And we got up there and we didn't get booed or anything. We actually got clapped at the end. Wow. So we, I think we started off with like six dates. We ended up doing about 12 dates in the end because they kept saying, well, you can come with us now. You can come to Russia if you want. You can come. You can come to... Istanbul, we went on a private jet and everything. God,
2: the Peshmerga. So we actually—it
1: was like amazing. We went, like, you know, in St. Petersburg, Moscow. Um, we did like Croatia with them. We did the German dates, Hamburg, Leipzig to like hundred, hundred, two hundred thousand people. Yes. And it was like amazing.
3: Yeah, Blue Mountain. And then, um, just they
0: don't. Yeah,
1: and then and then basically, um, then after we finished the tour, I said to Sarah, well, "Let's just start a band together," you know. Yes. Then we, started, then, we, and then we started client, and then that's when we got signed to Andy Fletcher's label through Mute.
0: Which is quite, yeah, I mean, that's, that's quite something, isn't it? And Mute Records, again, they were another one of those labels.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, so I basically, I, it's like when I look at my career, it's like hilarious, like 4AD, signed to 4AD and Creation and Mute. <laughs> Virgin and Columbia. Five deals, the different labels. It's absolutely hilarious.
0: And have you managed to keep track of your... I know not all of it is probably, you know, the music, because that's one thing that's kind of hard to... I mean, publishing and ownership of music is always quite tricky. Did you manage to navigate that? Within? Well, I,
1: mean, I, I I signed a client to, to EMI with Mike Smith. Right. So I'm actually still with EMI music, so that's fine. I mean, I don't really look at it. I just get a royalty statement, and I, get, I usually get a cheque every twice a year still, which is really nice. Yes. And, and, you know, Mute were really good. They got some really good syncs. We had, like, Nip, Tuck, CSI... Had, you know we made quite a lot of money out of the publishing
2: wow.
3: and
1: then so yeah i mean i i can't really complain really you know i'm still signed to emi i mean i still get royalty checks. i don't know where they're selling the records but they are obviously getting getting played somewhere let yeah. me just i got a phone call um there's a new series on netflix and they're looking for they're asking if they could use clients for that which would be great but obviously this is before lockdown so i don't know where it is at the moment
2: could be anywhere
0: yeah. yes this is true. So how long does, I mean, Client starts 2000, 2002, doesn't
1: it? Yeah. And then we did like, um, we did two albums with Mute um, and There, but Then we did two albums with Out of Line. Yes. Three albums. I can't actually, then we did another album. Then I fell out with Sarah. <laughs> I think girls in bands always fall out. That's what I've learned.
2: Oh, I don't, yeah. The only band
1: I didn't fall out with Anne in technique, but I think, you know, girls tend to fall out I don't know why
0: strange isn't it because because yeah. uh, I do love the Fleetwood Mac story and when Stevie Nicks and Lindsay no Stevie Nicks and um, Chrissy McVeigh talk they often said they just kind of bonded a lot because of the the debauched nature of the rest of the band yeah. so I think perhaps it's just if there was just no other dynamic that you just kind of it's a bit different but when there's three other also ch- I mean
1: they were so big they were making so much money from every show they had to you know them to, to stay together yeah. when you're a little band kind of like scrimping and staying in like shitty little hotels it's easy to fall out really yes and they were having
0: and everyone was having a relationship with each other so I think it was like they were the only two who probably didn't well probably John McPhee and uh, Lindsay Buckingham didn't either but I don't think but um who knows It's it's Fleetwood Mac it's a great story so yeah so then so with client that that again has has quite an amazing bit how did you cope because Because you did bring out a lot of albums and during, especially the the 90s period, you know, there was an awful lot of, yeah, in the 70s, people used to talk about sex, drugs and rock and roll. Then that kind of gets dropped. But there's, you know, this sort of the 90s is kind of got that cocaine and champagne kind of narrative to it. Did you manage to sort of navigate that world? okay, or did it trip you up occasionally?
1: I didn't really take drugs, so it's really boring. No,
0: that's good. (laughs) I didn't really get
1: trips up at all. I met Alan in the 90s. And one of the reasons we went out is he, he said, "I'm not can't go out to anybody that takes drugs." He's obviously just come out of rehab. Yes. So I didn't really take drugs. I'm not, I wasn't a drug taker. No. Maybe that's why I kind of I'm kind of still doing music now. You know, I don't really ever cane it. I'm not really a caner.
3: No. Well, no. Well, you,
1: I can gallop. I gallop my horse flat out on the mountain. I get high from that. You
0: yeah. If you go from Jim Carneys, you can't go to cocaine can yeah. you? It just it just wouldn't work.
1: You well, yeah, don't, don't get me wrong, I've tried everything. Just, <laughs> I'm not an addict, so I don't need, you know. I've yes. tried every single drug on the planet. I just want to see what it's like. And then
2: thought, mm.
1: And I thought, mm, okay. You know, not gonna, I'm not going to get into this.
0: Yes, because you have collaborated with a huge amount of people, haven't you? With your, you know, like from, I don't know, is it the Libertines, Nitsareb, Depeche Mode? Yeah, we
1: did loads and we had like, you know, we had um, Robert from DAF came on tour with us, he played the drums, we had like Douglas McCarthy, we had lo- we've collaborated with a lot of people. Yeah. Um, it's just fun really, you know, it's just a different angle, get, get them involved. Is it, you know,
0: are you one of those very organised people who can sort of kind of coordinate all this together, you know, like, I suppose I was thinking of people like David Bowie who didn't have a band, but he would construct a band and then do the album, do a tour mostly, and then sort of move to the next thing. But you've, you've obviously, you know, it's always been changing, hasn't it?
1: Um, I think with Client, we just changed up every album. I mean, I did all the art direction for them and checked all the outfits and, you know, did all the kind of visual side to it. Yeah, A lot of the collaborations were, you know, we signed to a German label, so they said, look, why don't you do this collaboration with this person, you know? A lot of it was, like, offered to us. Yeah. And, we we, know you know, we'd you know, turned down quite a lot. And then if we really liked them, we would go, yeah, OK, let's do that.
0: And did you, uh, and and because, I mean, you, you've you had to write, record an awful lot of stuff, did that, the writing process, did that become a little bit easier over time?
1: I mean, yeah, I did most of the writing at home, actually, on a Logic. Yes. And then I got Joe Wilson from um, Sneaker Pimps came in to work with us, and he was amazing. So, I just do like the basic songs and the basic lyrics and the basic melody, and then he'd come in and we'd make the drums much better, you know? Yeah. And we'd actually nearly mix them at home, and then we'd take them to like Port Hitler to mix in the studio, Mute Studios. We'd mix most of the records there. So, um, I taught myself logic, and I actually am still using it now. Um, I'm not a great programmer, but I think if you, if you can do the tools yourself, it gives you so much more power.
2: Yeah.
1: So, I actually went I remember I on this course, like, <laughs> in Hackney, and there's like, With like fourteen-year-old hip hop boys on it, (laughs) course for like six months to learn how to use logic. (laughs) So I I was really like, if I do, if I want to do something, I'll just do it. Yeah. So I, I'll just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going till something happens. Uh, I can get knocked down all the way, and pick myself up again, and just carry on. That is perseverance. You've got to be quite thick-skinned. You know, I had a dream. Obviously, be dream and dream and dream. And I think with music looking back there's so many dreams are just thwarted aren't they and you know most people do music business kind of does take it out of you it rings rings takes the best of you rings you and throws you away yes. and I think, you know i think it's a really horrible business actually um if you can kind of keep your head above water and can write a little bit and can do collaborations and get some sinks you know I, that's kind of the way to make to kind of make it a bit more of a career Yes. I think now it's so hard for young bands now. I, you know, I think if we came out now, we wouldn't probably even have a starting post, you know? It's, it's tricky. So difficult.
0: Very tricky, very yeah. tricky. I mean, when you look back at your career, what bit is, is you know, do you have your fondest memories?
1: God, probably supporting the Cocteau Twins in a little transit van around Europe was amazing. Yes. And then um, probably Depeche Mode, going in their private jet.
0: That would be hard to beat, really. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> probably, the highlights probably yes. and then we played our Vika festival in Sweden and we played the small um, stage and it, it was literally packed as far as you could see there were people they were all singing along that must clients. have felt amazing and that was just the most amazing feeling when, yes and then we we did we played like Istanbul like six times and we thought about two records there we always had like major press and we'd always like on the front page of the local paper and the videos were shown everywhere and the gigs were always sold out. In fact, we did a gig with Martin Gore there. He came and sang one of the tracks with us. And I remember everybody sang along. Everybody was like lighting candles. And yet we'd sold like two records. <laughs> they were all just bootlegs.
3: Because
1: yes. we didn't sell any records. And our market was like they just all bootlegged the records or stole it for the internet. The yes. physical record sales, when we were on mute, were really bad. But everywhere that we played, they seemed to know the lyrics and sing along. <laughs> so, you know, that was kind of, we, you know, we played Moldavia once. With Phoenix, that French band, yes. that was amazing. So we did this mad gigs, you know.
0: And did you ever? I imagined, client, yeah, I was going to say, did you ever talk, do any dates in America?
1: Um, yeah, we did with of course, it an American tour. I still remember it, and that was that was great. And then we we toured with Client, kind of like a disaster tour because we, you know, we just did a few dates there, and we, you know, it was a bit half-hearted. So not really. Um, we, you know, we DJed in in New York and with Andy Fletcher once, and that, that was great. But, you know, we, just, we, we did most of the touring in Europe.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've toured
1: Italy. I remember getting up and down that, we toured Italy, like, 10 times. You know, we'd up and down that motorway, been, like, all, like, Sicily, Catania, Prazenda, everywhere. And Italy, we, we, we did quite well in Italy, whenever I was fine to mute. We, you know, we could play Rome and sell out. Quite a nice venue in Rome. Not a massive venue, but like 600 capacity venue. You know, play there once a year. So, you know, I think kind of like with Frasier Chorus, I look back, All I wanted to do was tour. Why can't we tour? Why can't we go to Europe? And then with clients, it was like, I actually can't tour anymore now. <laughs> I literally yes. can't go on another gig. I just can't do it. I've I'm literally toured out. We went on tour every weekend for five years.
3: I don't know, physically. And I sort of...
1: Of, I've got two things that I will always remember from touring Europe. One is why don't the Ibis Hotel curtains actually reach the bottom? <laughs> So you have to have a mark, otherwise you get woken up really early because there's like an inch of sunlight comes through. The curtains never fitted the actual windows. That was the main thing from touring, I remember. (laughs) And I also remember in Germany having to pay to go to the loo at the service stations and we just jumped over the barrier every time. And once we were on tour with Charlotte Happily from Ash, because she came on tour with us for like a year, and we got caught... (laughs) and taken to this like room and told off in German for jumping over the barriers and now thinking guy hands from EMI music actually started these service stations we're actually signed to EMI so just fuck off will you <laughs>
0: yeah, but yeah but your German then, body wasn't um, good enough to say that was yeah it?
1: we t- we talked we went to Mexico about six times a client as well and that was amazing that was probably a highlight
0: my god I can see and have you yeah. are you in that stage now of, of Having a rest from music. Or I never you...
1: want to go on the road ever again. But what about <laughs> no. release?
0: What about releasing new material?
1: Mm, I'm, I mean, I would go on tour again, but I would just be really picky about the gigs now, and just do like probably dark mode gigs in Europe. You know, yes. these dark wave festivals are, are quite good to play because they're usually for the weekend, so you'd have to worry about no one coming to the gig because they're like a ready-made audience, and it's like the kind of that kind of dark wave is quite big still in, in Europe. Right. I would I'd like I'll do those. Like we did a couple last year, we did like you know, we did one in Gothenburg. It was like a an electronic music festival. It was all like kind of gothy bands. But I, I actually like that scene. So um if, if some of those gigs came up I would definitely say yes to those you know you get treated really nicely. It's quite a small very tiny festivals. Yes. But now I'm just like um just writing at home. I'm I'm actually involved, I'm helping produce this film, a local film now called Pig Man and I'm going to write the music for that. So I'm kind of doing some sort of soundtracky stuff, really, at home, just on my own,
0: and do you got my prefer- logic
1: set up. Yeah. And do
0: you prefer that at the moment?
1: Well, it's not that I prefer it. I haven't really got a choice. I don't really want to start writing... I don't really want to make another album at the moment. Yeah. Just, I'm just enjoying doing this and just doing more, more, like, kind of filmy kind of stuff. You know, if if, if, we, you know, if a client gets the Netflix picture, you know, yes. we might go on tour again, you know?
2: absolutely because things
1: can change in music you can suddenly get like an advert suddenly your record is like everywhere it's all like chance and luck something i've learned so i think never get you know never say never really
0: yes absolutely i think it was the blow monkeys i think they had a track on um the dirty dancing soundtrack album which
1: yeah i mean you know sometimes things just come and you can get a soundtrack and suddenly your record is like big again everybody wants to know who you are you can go on tour it's a weird business you know, oh, it's a lot of luck. I think music is a lot, many luck. To be honest, I think music.
0: Yes, I remember the story about Nick Lowe and his song. What's so funny about good, peace, love, and understanding? And I think the way it eventually got onto the album, onto the, a soundtrack to uh, the Bodyguard, was really, really lucky. It was almost like
1: I don't know. I, it's fluke and luck really Yeah, so one I, person likes your music and they, they put it in last minute you know, yes yeah, so I think
0: works. they were looking for one more song to put on this album and the, and the, the owner of the record label was in some bar and so could have heard it and went oh actually perhaps we'll put I this know. on and it was a bit like suddenly Nick Lowe thought I'm not yeah. going to have to I work mean, ever know, with, again
1: <laughs> I mean, with a Client we got offered this massive beer advert and it's like it was enormous and it was like loads of money and they went, there were two tracks they went for ours and another track and the other person got it, yeah. so so much disappointment. You just have to kind of suck it up, really, and just wow. think, well, you know, something will come, you know.
3: It does. It will.
0: Mm. But that's great that you worked with Lee Scratch Perry as well as the Mad Professor.
1: It wasn't, it wasn't. Yeah, Lee Scratch Perry was very interesting working with him. Um, that's another whole podcast. I think <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually resigned from the tour after one rehearsal. That's good enough. I couldn't go on tour with him. He was an absolute nut job. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. I was meant to be playing the flute, which I played in his album. Um in fact he did actually do a he did a mission I did a mission control album with Creation as well, a kind of reggae album. Yeah. Which which was put out and we actually he did a track for us then. We didn't actually know he was doing the track. He kind of did it without knowing what he was actually doing. But I actually went on tour with him, I did a I did a rehearsal with him to go on tour and I played the flute on his record and he wouldn't actually let me play my flute at all.
2: Really? He wouldn't let me
1: touch it. He just wouldn't let me touch the flute. He went, no, you're not going to play the flute. It's the devil. You've got to sing. And I'm like, I can't sing. <laughs> I've got a really shit voice. And I've actually played flute on your record. He went, no, you're not allowed to play the flute. It's the devil. The devil is, the, the flute is the devil. Put it on the floor and don't touch it. God. And then he made me sing. And, it, and I was singing. He went, no, no, you're out of tune. I went, I know, because I can't sing. He went, no, girl, you're out of tune that again your G is out of tune sing it again and in the end I just thought you know what this is actually not fun fuck off (laughs) and I left I was going on tour on a European tour singing one note with the guy that went let me pick up my flute (laughs) But he was an amazing character. I just thought he's absolutely absolute nut
0: job. Yes, yes. I think when you're young, so, yeah. you, you kind of want to hang out with people like that because they're kind of. Yeah, but I kind just of,
1: thought, you know, actually, no, but, I'm not going on tour with you, sorry. But you get
0: to an age you think, no, this, yeah. is, this is not going to end well. I'm, no. I'm going to sort of quit now. I'm going yeah. to quit. It's like, what's it, pontoon, sort of stick on 16 rather than try and twist. <laughs> it's, yeah, oh well, wow. blimey. The was he the probably the maddest person you worked with then?
1: I think so. I remember we went to the rehearsals and he um, he put everything through, added his tracksuit bottoms. He had about 10 and he's threaded all the electrical leads through it. So the microphone with the vocal was added his tracksuit bottom
3: <laughs>
1: with the microphone at the top. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, he's bonkers. He had like, loads of CDs all taped all over him when he was singing. He's amazing I and mean, he was you know, he's an amazing, charismatic person. But I don't think going on tour would have been a good idea, really. Yeah, you
0: wouldn't, you wouldn't well, trust him to look after the ponies, three would week you?
1: a three-week tour in the minibus with him. I think I, I probably would have... Oh, I could have done
0: it. God, Yeah, no, that would have been bad, actually. Yeah. Just give him your address, because he'll turn up one yeah. day, won't he? Looking after ponies, don't yeah. do that. <laughs> so, what? Just oh yeah, just lastly, what would you say to a, an 18-year-old self, you know, starting out... In that world. And if you could have said something to yourself back then, what would it be?
1: I think don't, don't be too emotional. You know, cause lots of musicians are really soft, aren't they? And they take everything to heart. And I was very sensitive. You know, I probably cried more than I laughed. Like, Don't take everything so seriously. It is a game, really. And if you keep it the game long enough, you will get lucky somewhere. And it might not be what you actually wanted, but it will be something as good. Yeah. I think I'll say that. Just keep going, don't give up.
0: Indeed. Wise words. And that is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Kate Lucy Holmes or Kate Holmes for giving me the time for that interview. Much appreciated. Um, This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, If for some random reason you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. You can find it there. Keep it positive. Otherwise don't bother and also all these interviews have been archived and you can find those on itunes spotify and podbean just do c86 show lots of bands from the 80s mostly sometimes before sometimes after anyway look again big thank you to kate um much appreciated and yes
2: have a great week stay safe see you soon